Hi, this is Pete from the online radio service FrequencyCast. If you've not heard of us before, we produce regular online radio shows covering digital radio, TV and technology here in the UK. We're recording this in June 2010, and it's something of a special month for radio, as it was 90 years ago that the first mainstream broadcasting started from a little hut somewhere in Chelmsford, Essex. We caught up with John Bowen, the chairman of the Chelmsford Amateur Radio Society. When we spoke to John, we discussed the history of radio, the future of DAB digital radio, and how broadcast radio and amateur radio have all changed in the last 90 years. John started by telling me just what his society was up to in Chelmsford. Well, today we've been offered the education room in the new £5 million extension for Oakland's Museum by the Council to celebrate the fact that 90 years ago, on the 15th of June, Dame Nellie Melba came to Chelmsford and created basically the first professional broadcast in the world. So whereabouts in Chelmsford did the broadcast happen? That was in New Street, which at the moment uh, is quite infamous on the damage which has been created to a listed grade 2 building. So at that site, does anything remain of the old 90-year-ago operation? Hardly anything. It's the same thing. I would have thought that would be something that could be preserved as a, as a museum to Essex's history in broadcasting. You're absolutely right. Um, Peter Turrell, who's the chairman of the Marconi Veterans Association, was only remonstrating to the mayor of Chelmsford the other day that had we have been anywhere else other than Chelmsford, we'd be called Marconiville and that there would be an international Hilton Hotel to look at the international Marconi exhibit next door. And unfortunately, that's all gone to, to Oxford, to the University Museum there. And it's very difficult to actually get bits out of it for our displays or to even see it now. I then asked John if he was able to give us a quick explanation of what happened in those early days of radio. Yes, well, Marconi was making quite a bit of money in those days through building transmitters, each one, of course, with new technology, more powerful than the previous one. Um, And, of course, we we have already had, by 1912, the Titanic disaster, whereby people realised that radio could save lives at sea, as well as earn Marconi money through actually transmitting a message paid by the persons involved in that message. So the idea was uh, created of saving uh, lives, that all vessels were encouraged to have a transmitter, and so there was quite a market to build the transmitters. And, of course, um, boats go all around the world to areas not near land, and so you need a more powerful transmitter and a smaller one, and so there was a continual involvement process. And they were all tested in New Street, uh, and uh, the Postmaster General allocated them the call sign MZX, to enable them to legally transmit, but unfortunately they were only limited to half an hour of telephony per day. And so in the early days they simply read out the timetable for the railway between London and Chelmsford. And people were very, very vocal with their letter writing, and they would write to their MP and to all the local papers and to the Daily Mail and say that that they could receive the radio signals very well, but they didn't want to listen entirely to the railway timetable. And could they provide something more stimulating? And a number of Marconi engineers thought likewise. And so in their break times and evening, early evening, they would put on an impromptu concert, singing amongst themselves. They actually played a piano. Somebody got a gramophone and they played bursts on the gramophone. And of course, this swelled the letters received by all the previous people. 
that's wonderful, that's wonderful, let's have more of it. But of course they're limited to half an hour a day. What was the call sign that you referred to? MZX. You see, I remember hearing of of 2MT. That's later in the story. We're we're now talking about January, February, March of 1920. Right, OK. And so the power of the transmitter in those days has gone up from 2.5 kilowatts to 6 kilowatts in January and February. And then in the late February, they went to 15 kilowatts. Now, as a radio amateur, I'm legally entitled to transmit to 400 watts, but 15 kilowatts is really above my league. So they, they got to 15 kilowatts, and they were getting reports again from Canada that they were heard well, um, both reading the timetables and the impromptu concerts that they'd organised. And so Godfrey Isaacs, who was um, a very forward-thinking person, decided to team up with the Daily Mail where they were having a lot of these letters aimed and they also thought the broadcasting was the future and so they approached the dame and said would you sing for us and she said no absolutely not so they said well how much would you sing for oh well a thousand pounds they said you're on and much to her surprise the Daily Mail were prepared to pay that sort of money, bearing in mind that you could buy a very nice detached house in London for £500. So she came to Chelmsford by first-class railway, met at the station with a white Rolls-Royce, then she was greeted at New Street. Uh, the engineer said, for heaven's sake, keep her occupied because the transmitter is playing up. So two or three people were given the job of suggesting to her that she goes for a little walk around the factory area and outside to get her a good breath of air. And there, of course, is the classic story that they point to the top of the radio mast and say that soon your voice will be heard from the top of those masts. And then, of course, she said, young man, if you think I'm climbing to the top of that mast, you have another thing coming. I am Melba. I suppose you wouldn't know any different in those Indeed. days, would you? Yeah. Indeed. Now, this was the first radio broadcast that Dame Melba had actually done. It was also nearly the last, because she realised that if she was transmitting and thousands of people were listening to her for free, they may not come to her operas and pay money to actually hear her. Now, I remember hearing another story, this is, again, also from Riddle, of an Italian tenor. I wonder if you know the same story that I do. Well, I don't know your, your particular story, but once Dame sang for a quarter of an hour, then they had a break, and they retuned the transmitter, and then they sang for another quarter of an hour, and then she got in her white Rolls Royce, went back to the station, and went back to London. And it was very, very successful. There were thousands of letters received at the end of the next week where they had reported where where she'd been heard. And having done that, they were flushed with success, so other stars were invited, including Melcher. Now, he had a very, very loud tenor voice, so loud, in fact, that occasionally he blew up the transmitter because he overloaded it. Interesting listening to John telling us there about how Dame Nellie Melba was concerned about how radio could be killing off her live concerts. It all sounds remarkably similar to what we're hearing from today's music artists and their complaints about what online file sharing is doing to CD sales. So going back to the 1920s, those early tests carried on for a while, but then things changed. 
Unfortunately, um, in November 1920, there was reports of continuous interference at Croydon Airfield with the Marconi-installed and government-paid-for direction-finding system for the airplanes. And there was one classic example of during bad weather, the pilot reported that he couldn't actually hear Croydon Airport. All he could hear was singing and laughter coming from Chelmsford. This is just what the government wanted because the Postmaster General considered that broadcasting was a very trivial activity and should be stopped at all. And so the licence was withdrawn and for 14 months there was no more broadcasting from New Street. Then Marconi, under continual pressure from the Daily Mail and from MPs and the hundreds and hundreds of letters received, actually created the Scientific Instrument Company and sent them out to an ex-World War I wooden hut at Rittle and put eight engineers out there and told them to have a go at broadcasting and see what comes of it. And then, of course, 2LO was actually uh, formed after that, but before that we had 2MT, 2MATOC. Hello CQ, hello CQ, this is 2MATOC, 2MATOC, this is 2MATOC calling. Is that all right, Ash? Uh, and, of course, the, the people that he chose happened to be amateur uh, comedians, amateur opera stars, amateur pianists, um, and they thought that broadcasting was wonderful. And so did the thousands and thousands of people who listened to this. A fascinating glimpse there to the early days of radio. Now, some of you listening may be well aware of radio amateurs and what they get up to, but just why had they gathered together to mark this 90-year milestone? And in particular, what were the two chaps huddled in the corner of the exhibition up to? John Bowen explains all. Well, they're using amateur radio frequencies to spread the word that the dame started 90 years ago, um, and they're contacting amateurs throughout the rest of the world. Some good contacts have been made so far, do you know? Yes, yes. Unfortunately, we've got a very high interference level on the building, mainly due to the computers and the fluorescent lights which are running. So that means that reception from our point of view is quite good, but they can hear us very well. And what power are we transmitting at today? 100 watts. From a slightly different aerial to the original Marconi aerial. Yes, indeed. Yes, we're not 450 foot above New Street. (laughs) We're actually draped around the fir trees at the back. We took a quick listen into some of the chat. Here's one of their operators, John, chatting to a European counterpart. Yeah, from Golf Bravo 9-0, Mike Zulu X-Ray. Back to Foxtrot 8, Delta Zulu Uniform. Yeah, fine contact, uh, uh, Jean. Uh, your QTH in uh, Clermont. Uh, your signal is 5 and 9, and uh, thank you for the 5 and 9 plus signal report we got from you. Uh, nice to hook up with you. We are celebrating now 90 years since Dame Nellie Melba, a famous opera singer, back in, the ni- in 1920, made the first public entertainment broadcast from the Marconi Works uh, here in uh, Chelmsford. Getting the chance to chat face-to-face with a radio ham gave me the perfect opportunity to discuss a topic that's come up several times in recent shows, that of the Powerline Adapter, also known as a home plug. These devices use a home's mains wiring to make an internet connection available to rooms in the home where there's no internet router, and where Wi-Fi isn't an option. The home plug devices typically come with services like BT Vision to let you watch on-demand TV without having to run cables back to your home hub. There is a big problem with these adapters, though. They're causing interference to radio amateurs. Yes, indeed, where if you happen to have a next-door neighbour who's got one. If, of course, as a radio amateur, you haven't got a neighbour who's got one, then you don't have a problem. 
and it's all a question of the very complex equation as to what equipment your next door neighbour has got, how it's actually located within the house, how the house is wired, whose equipment it is that you've got, what frequencies you as a radio amateur or as a listener want to listen to, um, and the, the spurious transmission that you get from the next-door neighbour. So there's a lot of complex factors involved. If you were in the unfortunate position of being next to one of these um, transmitters, what sort of interference would that cause you? Would that just make things a little bit tricky for you to hear, or would it completely ruin your experience? It can be complete total wipeout of the shortwave bands. And unfortunately, all digital transmissions end up by having a, a higher harmonic uh, radiation capability than is normally recognised, and that can actually go up and even and affect your dab reception. I've heard a report from Ofcom that uh, a number of radio enthusiasts have complained, and the complaints have been resolved by simply replacing equipment at a next-door neighbour's property. The report kind of gave me the impression that this is only really affecting a handful of individuals. Is that true, do you think? Well, it's like a lot of things. It's easier to go to the pub and complain to the people you're buying the beer for than it is to actually get involved in uh, Ofcom. Some people I know have completely given up the shortwave bands. Just purely because of this kind of local interference? Yeah, yeah. and also, of course, there's a problem with um, neighbourhood. Uh, it might be that your next-door neighbour has got a, a very big uh, frame and a very big fist, um, and uh, it could well be that, um, that they, they would uh, think very uh, unkindly of your wife, even, if you've complained, and such that the equipment that they bought in all honesty, in good faith, has actually proved to be a problem. You can buy and operate these power line plugs legally in the UK. What I was less clear on, though, is if a pirate radio station were to be causing interference, the government can close it down. If these devices are broadcasting across the spectrum and causing interference for other radio users, how come these home plugs aren't illegal? It's a very complex subject in which uh, there are a number of the units sold in good faith um, or purchased in good faith by the person in which the uh, radiation is worse than others. The bottom line of it is if, if these boxes were, let's say, interfering with emergency services or aircraft, there'd be an immediate blanket ban on these. The fact that they are causing interference, but it's not to maybe life-critical services, does that mean the government just can't be bothered to chase up on these or legislate against these devices? Well, it's the other way around. The government are under tremendous pressure to digitise the whole of the country, and they have been told that PLT is one way of introducing digitisation into the local network. So they have been convinced by the industry that it's a good thing. Unfortunately, um, with so many of these things which are partly politically motivated, that's not the end of the story. I mean, the basic idea is all right, providing that the feedback goes back to the manufacturers and also the people who are accepting the equipment and giving it its EMC certificate are aware of the potential problems and look for it on their spectrum analyzers. And the RSGB have raised a fighting fund to heighten the awareness of this, is that correct? That's actually to force Ofcom to accept its responsibility of looking at the whole spectrum, that they don't represent only the industry. no doubt the debate will rumble on. I next asked John about today's radio amateurs. Now that we've all got mobiles and the internet, just how active are today's radio hams? Uh, I've got the list of everybody who was licensed in 1924, and there it was definitely the upper echelon of society. The uh, reverends, the captains, the majors, the lords, whereas today the radio amateur is not the same 
higher echelon of society. But there's so many uh, radio amateurs out there now clutching what's called a cell net telephone. So they are themselves radio amateurs, but they just don't call themselves radio amateurs. Um, and they don't need to sit an exam or uh, learn Morse code. For <laughs> indeed, no. no. The Morse code, unfortunately, has now been dropped because I, I, my call sign is JDT, which is don't hear a thing, and I'm totally Morse illiterate. The exam process is still there, presumably. Yes, indeed. Yes, it's now a foundation course, which is it's just to ensure that you have a, an idea about the frequencies that you can transmit on, the simple rules, and you're limited to a uh, low power. But again, with uh, a reasonable aerial, you can work all of Europe without any trouble at all. We have one uh, person who joined the society simply because he's a sailor and he knows that the nautical frequencies won't enable him to go all around the world. But amateur radio frequencies will. But we have had a number of amateur radio um, members who've actually saved lives through that. Their boats have been sinking and they've actually been detected in Chelmsford by the amateur radio who then has alerted the Coast Guard and in one particular case in South Africa, boats were sent out and saved the uh, people from the sinking boat. Now, I can't help thinking of a Tony Hancock sketch. Yes, unfortunately, Tony Hancock um, did publicise the Radio Amateur, but Is It Raining in Tokyo didn't really do us an awful lot of good. <laughs> it wasn't one of them. There was uh, he, he received a Mayday call from a boat and he couldn't find a pencil and the, yes. the meter ran out. And yes, the, yes, yes. So it was a one, wonderful sketch, but it didn't really enhance the, the role of the radio amateur. The latest thing is bouncing signals from the moon. I'd be wrong if I didn't ask for an explanation of that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that, that the receiver sensitivity has improved, you, you've got a 129 dB threshold to actually get a signal to the moon and back to somewhere on this earth and now that receiver capability is improved it is now within nearly anybody's capability to receive a signal that has been bounced from the moon and is the moon's surface reflective enough to, to yes send indeed that yes yes indeed yes yes i think one of your colleagues was mentioning a um a link up with the international space station yes indeed all of the international space station members are licensed radio amateurs not so much because they want to talk to other licensed radio amateurs but all their wives are as well and so they're only allowed one hour to transmit officially every three days but if they're licensed 16 times a day they may actually go over their wife's house and they can have a chin wag as an extra bonus of keeping in contact with home clever loophole <laughs> so, so that's the background but of course in the the rest of the time then then often when they're not on official duties they're very happy to talk to other people as in fact there are a couple of easy jet captains and uh, officers who actually have got amateur radio equipment um, and they actually, on their trips around the world, talk to amateurs on the ground. Okay. Have you personally made any contact with anyone? No, but we have got members in our society who have. Just switching back briefly to consumer radio, I next asked John for his opinion on digital radio and FM's likely replacement, DAB. Well, when DAMS was first of all um, mooted and it was sold that the quality would be that far superior to that from a CD, I thought, this is great. It's using the old radio band three 
service frequency 200 megahertz um, and uh, I thought that would be a very good use for it and I thought yeah I can buy into that I'm, I'm quite happy with it but unfortunately so many channels have been allocated to such a limited frequency response that it's meant that the digitization means that the quality has gone down and down and down and now it is vastly inferior to that of the ordinary frequency modulated band 2 receivers. Presumably that's a commercial decision to get as many Indeed. different channels as possible. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of them of course are speech so they can be jammed in but then of course if they actually try and transmit high quality uh, broadcast then they need a bigger bandwidth. Even BBC 3 now is compressed on dabs. So as far as FM goes if we are ready to see FM switch off in three or four years time as is being suggested, would you see that as a good thing, a bad thing? I think it's a dreadful thing. I think that commercially they haven't thought the whole thing through and it's been from lobbying of the radio industry with maybe the thought they can sell more equipment but I just don't think people are going to buy it. There are 100 million FM sets as a a rough guide into the UK. 10 million of them are mounted in cars. I run two new cars, neither have got dab sets. So in a few years' time you'll be quite happy to spend a couple of hundred pounds to get those replaced? No, indeed not. (laughs) The, the sets that I've got and the cars that I own, they're built into the actual fabric to stop the two-legged fox from taking them. Um, and so it's a, it's a no-no. Good note to end on. Thank you very much, John. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for the interview. <laughs> this is Golf Bravo 9-0, Mike Zulu, X-Ray. 73, Jean, Abiento, merci beaucoup. Thanks very much to John Bauer, the chairman of the Chelmsford Amateur Radio Society, for talking to us, and also to the lads and lasses that we met in Chelmsford over the weekend. Also, we have to say a big happy birthday to radio, and the start of broadcasting way back in June 1920. The final word on the day goes to Morse operator Colin. You can see a picture of the team plus some links to amateur radio at www.frequencycast.co.uk forward slash amateur radio. QSLs are welcome. If you're interested in digital radio and TV and you're not a listener to our show, FrequencyCast, please visit our website and have a listen to our most recent show. We're available as an internet radio station or you can download us as a podcast via our website or find us on iTunes. All of our shows are free and we rely on questions and feedback from our listeners. Listen in to regular shows from Carl and I as we give our tantalising take on technology. You can find us at frequencycast.co.uk. For now though, 73s, over and out.